Hi, everybody, and welcome to this spooktacular episode of the Springfield Googleplex, a movie podcast for Simpson fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Gomez Adams, Skulls. Huh? And with me, as always, is the Nancy Thompson to my Fred Krueger, my co-host, a dark and storing Nate. Those were way harder to write than I ever expected, and I <laughs> really understand why the Simpsons writers gave up on them. They're really tough. <laughs> How are you doing today, buddy? I am just dreamy, Adam, and how about you? I'm I'm excellent. We're recording in the morning for the first time, so if my I might sound like a little hoarser than usual because I haven't been up for very long, but uh, I'm actually kind of enjoying this. It's kind of nice to start my day uh, talking with my best bud yeah, about uh, fresh. a classic movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, this week we watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. You might remember this movie from such Simpson episodes as Season 2's One Fish, Two Fish, Blowfish, Bluefish, Season 5's Cape Fear, Season 6's Treehouse of Horror 5, a full-on front-to-back parody in Season 7's Treehouse of Horror 6, and the couch gag from Season 10's Treehouse of Horror 9. So, Nate, as the newbie to the film, what did you think? Can you sum it up for us in in a sentence or two? All right. uh, Give it a shot here. So... A teen and her friends have to fight an undead serial killer in their dreams because their parents are assholes. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, pretty much. Although, are they assholes? Well, we'll get we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Because mm. there's there's maybe a debate to be had there, but uh, okay, yeah, no okay. that 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 works for me. And Adam, why why did you want to watch this film? Well, to be honest, it was it was one of the ones when we sort of like did our breakdown list of films that were parodied and possible subjects for the show. And then, you know, which ones I had seen, which ones you had seen. You had you had not seen this one, which I was pretty surprised by because it's it's well, I guess I wasn't that surprised because I was also kind of a latecomer to it. But based on our mutual love of the Scream series and knowing that this is a film from director Wes Craven, I figured that this would be kind of in your wheelhouse and that you would enjoy it. And I'm hoping that I was correct. But yeah, I just really, more than anything, I just wanted to you to be able to see it so that we could talk about it. Because I think it's a really, really fun, really interesting horror movie. Especially from an era when the movies that were being made were mostly terrible. So, <laughs> Okay, yeah. No, I, I, I did enjoy it overall. We'll get into it. But, you know, it's definitely a very unique film both within the context of the era and I think generally. You know, I think on the Simpsons side, the other interesting part of it is this is, I think, the first one we've done where there's a front-to-back parody uh, in, in a Simpsons episode. So that's kind of cool. It's a different different way of doing it. Yeah, I noticed that when I was watching the, the, the Treehouse of Horror episode, I was like, oh, this is like a straight-up beat-for-beat to the beginning-of-the-end parody, which, like you said, we really haven't had much of that so far. You know, mm-hmm. like the Planet of the Apes thing kind of, I guess, would come the closest. But even that is only, you know, it's maybe two minutes of an episode. So <laughs> I was very surprised at just like how well they kind of condensed the entire plot of this movie into a short one act of an episode of a TV series. And I also was kind of like, 
Yeah, this is what I love, and I wish they did this more often because it was really enjoyable. We kind of already alluded to this, but I want to just sort of talk a little bit about our personal histories with, like, horror movies and specifically Wes Craven movies because, as I said, I knew you were a big fan of the Scream series because when we were living together in university, we watched the first one. I I think we watched, actually, the whole trilogy. I certainly remember, I think it was, like, our first week after having moved to Toronto and we went to the mall and Music World was closing and had a sale and I bought the Scream Anthology DVD box set. (laughs) And I still have it to this day because, like, I don't want to get rid of it because it's just a really nice set. So, yeah, we watched all those. And then when the fourth movie came out, we went and saw it on opening night. And it remains to this day my absolute favorite theatrical movie experience because it was just like watching this movie with a bunch of like-minded fans. And it was just so much fun. But even like the other Wes Craven movies, like I've sort of, I've se- I, haven't, I wouldn't say I've seen his whole back catalog, but I've, I've seen most of it, certainly you know, the sort of the highlights of it. And I just think he's such a brilliant director in that. I I think there's a Hitchcockian, and I mean that with like the greatest compliment, there's a Hitchcockian level of understanding of um, suspense that he he manages. And he really does a great job of balancing horror and humor and understanding how you need that humor to sort of ease your audience's tension just so you can ratchet it back up again. Yeah, totally. It's not just relentless. You know, he understands you got to let them breathe for a little bit so you can ramp it up again and scare the shit out of them. Right. Which is interesting because that's not that's not when people say Hitchcockian, that's not usually what they mean. But that's all that is totally a Hitchcock move. Yeah, exactly. I think particularly like one of my favorites, Strangers on a Train, you Mm -hmm. know, is so good at that of just kind of having these moments of levity and similarly actually has a silver tongued antagonist (laughs) and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I could definitely see that. I'm also a a big fan, mostly of the Scream series. I'm not as familiar with Wes Craven's other movies. I feel like, I've, you know, Scream kind of spoiled me a little bit. Yeah, totally. Because it's kind of the ultimate version of Wes Craven's style of filmmaking, I think. He just hits the the comedy, the pacing, and the suspense and and mystery aspects of it so, so well in those movies. Um, And, you know... Uh, that's the that's sort of the one part of this movie it feels it all feels a little less refined than than scream but right. at the same time the premise is so interesting that i think it kind of balances it out a little bit yeah no i i i i totally see what you mean in that i think this is only like his fourth or fifth movie so like he's still very early on in his career but mm-hmm. if you come to this movie after being a fan of the scream series you can really sort of see him laying the groundwork and it's so interesting too because there was this this year, a new Scream movie came out, and it's the first Scream movie to come out since Wes Craven's passing, so he was not involved in any of them, which is what made, I think, the original series so unique is that he directed every single one of them up until his death. So it, it allowed for a level of consistency that is not normally seen in horror franchises. But my immediate thought coming out of the theater of seeing the new film was like, that was good, but it suffered for having a lack of Wes Craven. Like you really, <laughs> you really missed those touches that he brought to the series that I think elevated it above just your standard sort of franchise horror fare. Well, anyway, let's talk a little bit more about this film specifically, though. And mm-hmm. and uh, as always, we love to get our summaries from a unique uh, place. And I managed to find the original VHS box art for the the first release of Nightmare on Elm Street. And here's how they describe the plot of Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Nancy is having nightmares. Something in her haunted sleep wants to kill her. Something monstrous. Something unstoppable. But she has more to fear. Much, much more. Her high school friends, she discovers, are having the same fiendish dream. And they are being butchered, systematically slaughtered in their sleep by the predatory monster of their shared nightmare. When baffled investigating police ignore her chilling explanation, Nancy prepares to traverse into the hellish realm of nightmares to wage her own extraordinary battle with the ghastly killer. There she confronts the dark, decade-old secret of the very real Nightmare on Elm Street. Writer-director Wes Craven has composed an innovative horror fantasy that will expose your deepest, primal fear. But you can tell yourself, it's only a dream, can't you? And that's a fun little reference mm-hmm. to an older movie of his, which we'll talk about. I don't know about you, like, but again, I've already seen the movie, obviously. But when I found that, I was like, man, if I were in a blockbuster and I picked this up and read that, that's a really, I think it's an accurate plot summary, unlike maybe the Karate Kid VHS plot right. summary. Right. But it's also like a really compelling one. I don't know if it necessarily pays off to the full extent of what that's <laughs> promising. But that's a yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what I love about this movie is that it is a really compelling premise. It's such a it's such a unique premise that it's like if you die in your sleep, you die for real. And that's sort of the opposite of what, you know, we've always been told, right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think again, compared to the karate kid, it's like it gives you a lot of the plot, but it leaves out, you know, the mm-hmm. key parts. It's it's like pretty artful compared to compared to the other one we found. It actually feels like it was written by someone who maybe knows the movie, was maybe involved with the movie in some way. Yeah, I was gonna say has maybe actually seen it. Um, yeah. And uh, so so yeah, you gotta appreciate that you know quality marketing. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I was reading something too, like because the the financing for this movie is so interesting. Part of the way they were able to finance it was they sold the the home video rights very early on. So it's uh-huh. like these guys, I think, had like a vested interest in making sure people bought or rented the, uh, sure. the home video release. So, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Wes Craven, because I think the more research I did into him for this episode, I was actually really surprised at just what a fascinating individual he is. So he was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1939. Studied English and psychology in university and has a master's degree in philosophy and writing from Johns Hopkins. Huh. And for a period actually worked as a professor in uh, both Pennsylvania and New York, which I, I had no idea. He basically was working as a professor and then said, like, I want to try making a movie. And this is what's sort of especially interesting. He didn't start with horror movies. He actually started with low budget 1970s porn movies, uh, <laughs> mostly under a pseudonym. And that's surprisingly not uncommon apparently for filmmakers of this era i know francis ford coppola also directed a couple um Mm -hmm. low budget porn movies possibly under a pseudonym like before he kind of broke out and made the godfather so i guess shooting porn makes you a (laughs) like one of america's greatest filmmakers or something i guess you're working yeah, exactly. You're learning You're learning some skills. But he really rose to fame with his first directorial feature, The Last House on the Left, which was a grimy exploitation uh, horror movie that ultimately it's really interesting because Craven himself kind of has denounced the film, or maybe not denounced hmm. is not the right term, but I think it was in the commentary for the film. He sort of like looked back on what he was doing because, again, at the time he's young and he's trying to push boundaries, and he basically said, we went too far. Like, we've, we hmm. never should have gone this far. This is this is too much. The film was uh, produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who would go on to co-create perhaps the other most lucrative horror franchise other than Elm Street, Friday the 13th. 
the film itself capitalized on its brutal nature and had the iconic tagline, to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. So that's the little reference that was being made in the box. Which, again, Last House has a very large cult status. I don't know that necessarily the people picking up uh, Nightmare on Elm Street VHS in 1985 would necessarily know that they were making a reference there right. but i thought it was a kind of a an interesting little nod or maybe just lazy writing <laughs> or maybe just, yeah or maybe just lazy writing or a coincidence who knows right but yeah craven then followed that up with uh, the cult classic the hills have eyes which also went on to be remade in that sort of like late 2000s era when they just basically remade every horror movie from the 80s and then uh, he did just a, like one or two other sort of like horror and sci-fi movies before he landed on nightmare on elm street yeah, so it really does that does feel like early in a lot of ways. Definitely still evolving the style mm-hmm. of his movies, you know. Well, and it's interesting too because I like Scream. Obviously, with you know, and we're going to keep referencing it because it's sort of the film we both love so much. But that wasn't written by Wes Craven, whereas this right. was, which I think right. is also really interesting. Is that like he not only is a director, but he's a writer director, and I think he's actually a very competent writer. Yeah. Um, though he eventually realized that no, I'm going to let other people write i'll just direct but i think having that skill as a writer is part of also what makes him such a great director because he's able to sort of if he needs to rewrite a line or work on an improv he has a very good understanding of composing of a script and composing of a story to then be able to to direct an effective film yeah well and you can see you know even though scream was not written by him you can definitely see some through lines in the story like what totally you know, just like the the protagonist, the group of four teens, I think there's a lot of similarities to to the way that uh, Scream is set up. Well, so here's some, some background on Elm Street. What's really interesting, I think, is that Craven actually based this on a true story. He had heard this story about kids in, I think it was in Asia, that were essentially dying in their sleep. They were having mm-hmm. these nightmares and then basically refusing to go to sleep. Even so much as keeping hidden pots of coffee in their bedroom because their parents were like trying to get them to go to sleep, giving them pills. And basically the specific one story that they keep citing is this boy who was like, yeah, he refused to go to sleep, refused to go to sleep, finally did go to sleep and then basically died of shock in his sleep. And after he died, his parents were checking his bedroom. They found this like hidden coffee maker. They found all the sleeping pills that they had been giving him like they were under his pillow. He clearly wasn't Mm. taking them. And so, yeah, like, Craven just thought this was, like, such a fascinating idea of, like, kids dying in their sleep or being so afraid to go to sleep because something clearly was in their nightmares that was preventing them from sleeping. And kind of knowing something that their parents didn't know, too. Yeah, and so he sort of formed that into this, you know, incredible premise for Nightmare on Elm Street. He also talks about how Freddy was influenced by uh, a bully that he, he... had in in grade school and also in one of the documentaries he tells this story of how when he was a little kid he heard something outside his bedroom window and he went and peeked and there was sort of like a I think he refers to them as a drifter who then Mm. basically locks eyes with Craven and you know he's he's terrified so he like kind of scurries away and then after a few minutes he goes back to look out the window and the drifter is still staring up at the window and sees him and just starts cackling and he's like there was something so chilling about this grown adult who clearly got so much joy out of terrifying a child and so that formed the like foundation of the freddy krueger character sure which we'll talk about freddy in a little bit but i think he's a very very interesting horror villain and especially like to see the direction that his popularity took but you know in this movie in particular i think he actually does come across as 
relatively menacing, yeah. which is which is interesting. The film was pitched to multiple studios who all turned it down before it was actually picked up by the then independent studio New Line Cinema, who at that point was only really distributing films. They were going to produce it but not distribute it. But then the distributor fell through, and so they ended up also distributing it. Mm. And the film was made for, like, basically no money. It was, like, $1.1 million, which in, like, 1984, wow. 1985, is, like, nothing. And then went on to gross $57 million worldwide. So it was a huge, huge, huge success. Like, you know, I was going to say comparable to, like, Blair Witch level of success, although I think it was made for, like, 85000 or something, like, some crazy, crazy small amount. But the massive success basically made New Line Cinema an overnight success. They became the studio known as The House That Freddy Built. They would go on to release the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. The oh, yeah, another classic. A very, yeah, very, very <laughs> popular. Got acquired by Warner Bros. And then probably now is best known as the studio that distributed The Lord of the Rings. And mm. I think, again, that put them back on top for many, many years. But then, yeah, of course, as we all know, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise became massively successful, led to a string of sequels of varying quality, and eventually got remade in 2010 during that era of modern glitzy horror right. remakes that definitely because of needed course. to be made. Yeah, right. because of course it did. Who are you? Remember me? Yeah, so it was a massive box office success, beloved by fans and critics alike, still highly regarded today. You know, I think horror movies... They find a fan base and the fan base loves them, but they're usually like not critically acclaimed. They're yeah. you know, kind of maligned. But this one, again, because of the very unique premise, I think it was very highly regarded that it was like, oh, this is more than just like serial killer running around killing t- innocent teenagers. Like there's there's some philosophy here. There's some interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And then Freddie became a beloved horror icon almost to like a weird extent. He like hosted a television anthology series called Freddie's Nightmares. Uh, like he was at the MTV awards, like showing up, like Robert England was showing up in character as Freddy. And then of course went on to battle fellow horror icon, Jason Voorhees in the 2003 film, Freddy versus Jason. Freddy versus Jason. Place your bets. I feel like that actually was one of the main reasons why I never watched this, this film was because of that whole legacy of like, you know what what the hell is this this sort of like versus stuff with you know with two horror icons very weird sort of uh, direction that this all went yeah the reputation for it kind of is sullied by the sequels of very 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 in quality i would say right but yeah and then what i think is super interesting is that freddy is mostly played straight in this movie like he has a couple of little quips but as i said he's more played as like an actual like menacing threat but yeah. then would become sillier and sillier as the films went on, bordering into self-parody. But I think it's just because unlike Jason and unlike Michael Myers, he speaks because those guys are like these silent masked killers. Like Freddy actually has a voice, so he has the ability to have some personality. And so I guess mm-hmm. they kind of leaned into it. But yeah, the humor in this movie is more comes out in like the visual gags. Yeah, exactly. But they're all, but they're all supposed to be hit coming from him. So it yeah. makes sense that he could like that his dialogue would evolve in that direction. Yeah, exactly. Too. But I think what's also really interesting is that outside of that 2010 remake, Freddy has been consistently played by the same actor, by Robert England, including in like the TV anthology series. Like, obviously, England, basically, this became his his, you know, raison d'etre, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's very interesting that they never really bothered to recast him. Like they understood that there was some magic about this actor playing this role. And without him 
there is no movie. So it's like he's the star, you know? Yeah, I mean, he is the star. Like he's the one thing that's consistent throughout all of these sequels. Right. Which is super unusual. I mean, the characters, obviously, you know, in other franchises, like the, 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 the villain becomes, you know, iconic. But the idea of the, there being a movie star or like, a mm-hmm. you know, at whatever level, I guess, um, well, again, being, because, being the consistency, you know, usually that's reserved for a protagonist like in screen. Yeah. Right. One of the things they mentioned also that I thought was really interesting. They mentioned this in one of the commentary tracks was that they originally were sort of looking at stuntmen and somebody I, I don't know if it was Craven or not, but somebody said, no, like we we need to cast an actor like this needs to be <laughs> someone who can act because that was sort of what was very common was these masked killers. They would just hire stuntmen because they were going to just be thrown around and, you know, running around a lot. So they, they didn't really need to hire necessarily strong actors, but they were like, no, we're doing something different here. We need to have somebody who can act. And so they hired someone who has like Shakespearean theater experience. Do you think that, you know, I haven't seen the the sequels. So do you think in the sequels, the audience is ever supposed to be kind of rooting for Freddy Krueger? Or, or is, you know, I mean, he's obviously the villain, but do you get the sense that there's sort of this, uh, I don't know, like a schadenfreude situation where, you know. Well, I, here's the thing, is that I've only seen the sequels that Wes Craven's been involved in. Okay, because okay. I ha- So I haven't seen a bunch of the bad ones, but I, I know of their reputation. And I, I have a feeling that, yes, like that is kind of the idea, is that certainly, well, obviously you get to a film called Freddy versus Jason. Right, So it's right. very clear that like, yeah, he's... He's the draw here, and with the exception of, I think, the Wes Craven titles, you know, the the characters don't carry over. So, right. like, it's not it's not like a scream thing where Sydney is showing up in every episode, and you hope that Sydney survives. Like, right? It, it's just random children being attacked by this monster. So, I think, yeah, eventually it got to the point where you know nobody cares about these kids; they just want to see how Freddy's going to dispose of them in new and weirder ways. Right. Right. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about why the Simpsons would choose to parody this. Obviously, it's so it's 1995. It's it's 10 years since the film's original release and a year before Scream. So I was alive in 1995, but I was a child. So I don't really know where where we're sitting at in terms of like how popular the Nightmare franchise is. Like it's obviously it's probably reached some level of iconic status, at least the first film. Um, and when you're looking for movies to sort of parody in a Halloween episode, I guess it makes sense to sort of go in this direction. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the other ones, I think, were also box office hits. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah, like for it, sure. it's still in the collective pop culture. But, you know, I think it is interesting that the first one was 10 years before the episode because The Simpsons always does play with pop culture, but they don't like to be too topical. Right. Mm-hmm. And And so I feel like, you know, by this point. It's a tried and tested series where like people right. are going to recognize it. It has some staying power and isn't going to just like disappear. And so, you know, when it's in syndication, people will still get the jokes. <laughs> totally. Um, so I feel like that's maybe part of it, too. There's a part of me that wonders if it's also the, the very interesting concept. Like most horror movies, like if it's just, you know, Halloween, Friday the 13th, not to denigrate those ones because I think they are classics and understandably, but like they're stories are basic it's like killer stalks teenager movie ends like that's whereas this there is actually something there to like tell a story and therefore it it lends itself to parody you know you think about something like you know the other horror movies that come to mind that they parody 
The Shining, Psycho, like these are movies that like there's more substance to them. Yeah, yeah, they don't they don't ever do like Jason or outside of visual gags. Yeah, like there's they don't really do anything with it. Whereas I think it's interesting that this has been elevated to the level in their minds anyways of uh, a Psycho, a Shining, uh, an Exorcist. One of the only slashers. Yeah, one of the only slashers. I think it's very interesting that they chose this. The film has a lot of like cool visuals that they get to play with as well. Yeah, they always, I feel like, are looking for things that will be good inspiration for the animators, you know? And Mm -hmm. so whether that's about cinematography or it's about production design, right? And in this case, I think the character is so iconic, right? You have the hat, you have the striped shirt with like the bright sort of red and green colors. I feel like all of that really lends itself well to animation. And then also the surreal gags that happen in the movie, right, are also parodied a lot in the the Treehouse of Horror episode. And again, that's fun to animate. It's fun to play with. It, it, It sort of sparks the imagination. Yeah, and it's interesting too because in a weird way, the cartoonier elements of the film maybe don't work as well because it's live action. Whereas in a cartoon, they actually work really, really well. Like it it, it feels much more at home and much more appropriate and in a way almost scarier because like it, it works within that world, which I think is really, really super interesting. That's true. Yeah. It feels like less of a stretch in some ways uh, when you're watching out in Simpsons. You know, I think the other thing that definitely would appeal is I feel like a lot of the parodies, it's really about pairing uh, a character on the Simpsons with a character in the movie, right? That totally. casting aspect. And yep. and so who they actually cast as Freddy is part of the fun, <laughs> right? So it's, yeah. you know, obviously in, in the Treehouse of Horror episode, you have Willie, the groundskeeper, which, you know, it's kind of perfect, right? Truly perfect. In, in terms of what the role of Freddy is and what the role of Willie is. But also they just love to dump on, on groundskeeper <laughs> Willie, right? Like in other episodes too, there's lots of episodes where he just gets the shit end of the stick again and again and again and again. So there's that, right? But also, you know, I think it's in uh, Cape Fear, you have a very brief reference to Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's Flanders, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of the exact opposite. It's the the last person you'd expect being a Freddy Krueger type with a a knife glove, and I think he's cutting a hedge with it. Yeah, he's trimming his hedges, yeah. Say your prayers, Simpson. (laughs) Because the schools can't force you like they should. Ma, these new finger razors make hedge trimming as much fun as sitting through church. Right, right, Well, so, I mean, it's interesting because, like you say, I can't remember which Treehouse of Horror it is, but there is the one where (laughs) Willie gets killed in every short. It's the one that has The Shining, but, like, he literally, every single one is, he gets murdered. So they clearly do love to dunk on him. And then, to to your Flanders point, like, especially because, again, there is that other treehouse of horror and again i just can't remember the numbers or the story because there's so many of them where he's the devil like and that's right of becomes the like the joke is like well yeah the god-loving perfect christian guy actually turns out to be the devil is is just like a great brilliant sort of twist so let's dig into the things that we sort of loved or maybe didn't love so much about this movie the first thing that immediately comes to mind as what i think separates this film from the other films of the era and the other sort of horror movies out there is the special effects. I think the special effects in this movie not only are really unique and interesting, I think a lot of them hold up. You know, they're not relying on CGI. They're relying on doing everything practically. And sometimes that works better than other times. But is there a specific special effect moment that sort of sticks out in your mind as a favorite? 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many good moments, but I mean, Tina's death, right, which is the first murder in the movie. Number one, it's really scary. <laughs> yeah. It's really scary. But also the special effects are wild. And, you know, basically she's she's sort of brought into the air and she's struggling and bleeding and being cut. And this, she's up in the ceiling, like, freaking out. And her boyfriend is, like, watching this happen from the, the ground. And you actually get a shot where they're both in it. And he's looking up at her on the ceiling, which is really cool. I mean, from a special effects standpoint of just... And they did it all practically. I mean, like yeah. that's the no CGI. That's the thing that's amazing. Um, no, and no so, CGI and no money too, right? Like, right. This is, it's crazy what they're able to accomplish. Right. And I, I mean, I was reading a little bit about this. So he, you know, my understanding is the boyfriend is actually the one who's really on the ceiling in that shot. Yes. He's strapped in and has his hair all greased down to make it look like he's he's right side up. And she's the one actually on the, the floor of, of the set. And the set's completely upside down. Uh, which is, yeah, so cool. Yeah, they basically built a rotating room. Like, the whole right. room is articulated, and it, they sort of stole the old Fred Astaire gag where he, like, dances up and around the walls, and they basically did right. the same thing. As she's sort of slithering, they're turning this set by hand. And, yeah, like, it's such a brilliant moment. And because it's so early on, too, it's, like, really setting the stage for, like, this is the level of brutality you're going to expect like get buckle up basically yeah although that said i think this is actually the most brutal one and it it doesn't get more brutal from there really but it it definitely shows what freddy krueger is capable of right yeah like that's and and so you know that he's that scary and then i think from there they get more cartoony in a lot of ways and a little bit more surreal in the way Mm -hmm. the deaths happen but that one's really particularly brutal it's also interesting that like you know you see this same effect uh, reproduced by like Christopher Nolan, right? Years after this was this was made, at a time when everything was CGI, and you have Inception reintroducing all these practical effects to kind of make things magical again in cinema. You know, we've gotten to this point. We think we've probably said this before on this podcast, mm-hmm. where you know, effects. It's like anything can happen, right? Yeah, and it's, so nothing feels particularly um, exciting. But Inception, that was what was so exciting about Inception is that so much of it was done practically. Yeah. And he steals the exact same sort of rotating set trick, yeah. but then puts it in an action context instead of, you know, dancing or horror. So really cool to see how that effect has come back again and again over time. Yeah, I mean, for me, the image that always sticks out in my mind and every time I see it, I get so giddy because it's so good is when Nancy is lying in bed. And Freddy starts to come out of the wall. And they explain in the commentary how they did it. It's basically like stretched material. They have a light that's high so that as you come out, it lights it from from above and gives this very eerie image. And it's just, it's so creepy, but also so beautiful at the same time. And again, it's one of these truly evocative, iconic images that goes like, this is not what you normally see in these kind of movies. Like it's right. These movies are usually very cheap and it's just played for lots of blood and gore. Like this is doing something like different. It's saying, no, you can make a horror movie. That's also kind of beautiful. And, and that's becoming more and more popular now. Like all those a 24 movies, like hereditary and yeah. summer and all, and, and all that stuff. Like horror has sort of been elevated in the last 20 years or whatever. But I think at the time it definitely was not like this would have been right. Unlike anything else. So yeah, you know, usually it's just like, well, someone gets stabbed or dismembered or, or whatever, right? There are a lot of setups that, that become kind of repetitive, I feel like, in a lot of yeah. these movies. But this one definitely is playing with that. And 
there are so many horror moments that aren't about killing, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and that that's one of the ones that definitely stands out for me, too. I also love the use of like classic movie gags. You know, there's a moment very early on when Tina wakes up and he slashed her and then you see that her dress has been ripped and like it's, yeah. it's that classic thing of like you don't actually see it really happen but the way it's cut together it works but I also love that moment because it really sort of establishes the the stakes of what's at play here right the other sort of favorite iconic image for me and moment is the bathtub scene where where Nancy is in the tub falling asleep and the glove just rises out of the water and it's so creepy and like yeah. there's obviously like a, a sexual element at play there and then she's fine and then all of a sudden like she falls into the tub in this brilliant overhead shot and that whole section is just so it's the, again very simple effects but they're executed in a way that elevates them and I think it's so brilliant I love that I love that scene. Do you remember the dialogue in that scene? Because it's it's actually really funny. You have this like horrifying thing happening visually, and the mom is talking to her through the door and says something like, Don't fall asleep in there. You could drown, you know. Oh, for Pete's sakes. What happens all the time. I've heated up some warm milk for you, honey. Warm milk? Gross. <laughs> Yeah, it's but meanwhile, this thing's happening and the audience is like, oh, my God, you know, it's that classic horror movie feeling of like, she can't see it. You, you need to get out. Yeah. Stop. And, and then at the end, when she gets out and she's like, I'm fine, mom, like I, she won't admit that she was just almost drowned by a supernatural dream demon. But right. Which is kind of like also playing on the teen parent dynamic, which is, a you know, a trope in a lot of these these sorts of movies as well. Um, of, you know, so teens going through something and not being able or willing to talk to their parents about it. Well, um, let's maybe actually dig into that, because that was one of the things I we wanted to talk about is the characters. Like, sure. what, what was your thoughts on Nancy? Because I think she's sort of the prototype for a character like Sidney Prescott, but she's not like most horror female protagonists at the time. Sure. I, I think I liked her overall. Um, she's not as cool as Sidney Prescott no you know and she's and and the acting is not as not as on point good. yeah 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 but you know is she the one that has the crucifix as well it, you yes. know throughout the film and so it's interesting like she's she's got this sort of Christian character and does kind of fall into some of the horror tropes too of like you know she's the virgin right and and yep. all that kind of stuff whereas some of the other characters do have sex and then they're Right. But you get the you get the sort of feeling that like she's the hero. She's the adventurer. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's she's not just like watching these things happen. She's like actively trying to stop them and figure out what's going on and how to stop it. Right. And throughout the film, she becomes more and more crazy looking, basically, as she yeah. like stops sleeping, starts taking pills, starts like drinking coffee constantly. And and so she just starts looking more and more tired and and messed up she's saying crazy things to her parents after one scene i think in the sleep lab she even has like a streak of gray hair um yeah. that that shows up and so like from that standpoint i like that she's a very active character right who who is actually driving the plot forward and from, so from that standpoint i think she's she's definitely a good character well it's interesting too because the film opens not with nancy it opens with tina and and, and right. tina very much sort of fulfills the traditional sort of horror female character. Like she has the same kind of look. She's in a nightgown. Like, so there's like, like I said, there, the sexuality is obviously like a huge element at play throughout this film and most horror movies. But 
you know, the, the film sort of does this. It sets it up that she's going to be your hero. And they even sort of in one of the commentaries or documentaries I watched, they're like, yeah, Wes is basically doing the psycho thing of like setting up that this is the star and then right. pulling the rug out from under you and killing her off in this brutal way in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And now we're actually going to follow this other person who is the exact opposite of what that character that we first thought we were going to be spending the movie with is like. I think also what I love about all of the characters, but also specifically Nancy, it's one of the few movies where the teenagers actually look and behave like teenagers. You know, even, even scream, like the actors all look like they're in university, but they're supposed to be in high school. These, they look like kids and granted maybe their performances suffer a little bit from their youthfulness but they all look like actual high school kids and that's super rare i think yeah for sure i i also do think like those that set of four feels very scream to me there are like many Mm -hmm. moments that remind me of that because you have nancy as sydney prescott you have tina as tatum right and then you have the two guys right and they have such a similar dynamic right um, you have like, you know, Johnny Depp and Skeet Ulrich even look a lot alike, right? So much alike. So much alike. And then, and then you have the, the other guy, the sort of bad boy. And even some of the jokes that happen are very yep. scream, right? Where yep. you have Tina and Rod are kind of like, you know, getting ready to hook up. And Glenn had just gone into the backyard to kind of like check on a sound, right? right. And they're like about to go back inside. And Rod sort of puts his hand over Tina's mouth or, or what or around her neck or something behind her. And she's like, ah, help me from this, this like crazy lunatic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he like pulls her away. That felt very scream to me and very much like in that same type of character, the sort of crazy bad boy type, um, who everyone, of course, would believe is the bad guy in this movie. Right, but. of course. Well, and it's funny, too. I think it's in it might be in the scream commentary. I can't remember where, I hear, but there's because there's a scene where Johnny Depp comes into nancy's bedroom through the window right and right. Then of course that's that's a whole thing in scream is skeet Ulrich totally. coming and but he looks like johnny De- and so they like i'm pretty sure it's in the scream commentary that wes is like yeah this is a reference to the fact that they look alike and that happened all the time or, oh, there you so go. I, yeah it is i think it was intentional we're kind of dancing around this this is johnny depp's first movie yeah, like, super weird. And he plays the dweeby nerdy kid, which is yeah. so weird because obviously Johnny Depp went on to become, you know, a 90s heartthrob. But in this movie, he is he is not he's not playing a heartthrob character. He's playing the like hapless nerdy, like the millhouse almost, uh, <laughs> which is super, super weird. Right. And, right. It's, and, and in fact, like, you know, at one point, Nancy, I think, calls him a little shit. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's an unusual role for him. And But he's like, I think he's really, again, mm-hmm. he's great and he looks like a teenager and acts like a teenager. And, you know, the only downside is that very weird crop top that he wears in the final act of the movie, which nobody yeah. ever seems to discuss. But I'm like, why is this man wearing a crop top? It doesn't. It, is. All- it was I'd like I was like, is that was that a thing? Is that, you know, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I- it's it's very it's very funny to me. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to touch on, though, is just uh, because it, it, to Nancy's character of being this sort of strong heroine, um, Craven's daughter apparently is responsible for this because I guess mm. it was on the last movie he made before this was another sort of like monster movie. And his daughter basically called him out of saying, like, why do the girls in horror movies, they always just happen to like fall and right. then they get attacked? And he sort of was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I need to write a strong 
female who fights back. And obviously they like really play with that element in Scream. Right, um, right. You know, to, to the point where they, Sydney basically gives the same speech of like, why do these horror bimbos always keep like not just running out the front door? Right. But I think it's interesting that like he he sort of, yeah, he listened to his daughter and said, yeah, you're right. Like these women characters are always sort of superfluous and, you know, body count. Like I need to make them the characters. And, and yeah, and I think I think it is really effective. And it's interesting, too, because Heather, sorry, Nancy, she becomes one of the few characters that does return because in Wes Craven's new nightmare, Nightmare 7, I want to say, wow. it's it's like this meta film that is about the actors from the original are now being attacked by Freddy. It's, it's like very screamish too. Yeah. Very prototypical scream, like scream threes, scream four. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, but in that Heather is playing Heather and she's being attacked by, it's a whole thing. It's one of the better sequels, but anyway, what did you think of Freddy? Because I mean, we've sort of talked about this already, but like, Obviously, again, he's not like your average horror movie villain. Did did it work for you or did you just kind of find him silly or like were you yeah. scared? I mean, it's so hard to say because it's like, you know, there's the stuff that happens where he's actually on screen. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's all the supernatural stuff where he's not on screen, but the character is causing it to happen. Right. Yeah. And so I didn't find the parts where he was on screen particularly scary. Okay. Often. And my favorite parts are often the parts where he's not visible. Right. Right. So like from that standpoint, I'm kind of like, I, I don't know how to answer that question, I guess. Cause it's like, I love the, I love the idea of the character, right? Like this sort of dream monster yeah. that can like manipulate reality and all of that. I think that that's really, really cool. But in this movie, I feel like when he's on screen, I'm kind of like, it's fine. You know? No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree. I think it's kind of like the, the shark from Jaws. It's like right. it works best when he's a presence and a menace. But when he's actually on screen, the cartoonish elements, you know, like there's the scene where he like slices off his fingers and he's and yeah, and like he cuts open his and there's like the maggots and stuff. And like it's it's kind of gross, but that's not menacing. Whereas the opening sequence of the film where you see him building the glove and it's setting up this monster like that's terrifying because you're like oh shit like what's this thing what's gonna happen with this like where is this going so yeah i think i think you're right he's almost better when he's not there then which is a a weird thing to say but like right well but it it makes sense the idea of the idea is scary yeah it makes sense like that's a that's a common like horror movie thing right like good horror movies yeah is like you don't necessarily show the monster all the time it's it's shadows it's it's like you know and they do use a lot of like close-ups of the glove or things Mm -hmm. like that to build up this impressionistic view of him instead of always showing his whole body you know but i do think that it's definitely stronger in this movie when he's not there. It seems like the sequels kind of lean much more into him being there all the time and you seeing him and talking. And yeah. All that. And he, and he gets, again, as I sort of said to the point of self parody, like he becomes this like quipping guy. And like, right. There's a line in the third one where he turns into a TV, grabs a girl and says, the prime time, bitch. 
and then shoves her head through the TV to murder her. Like it, he gets very, it gets very silly, right, right, and right. doesn't really do it for me. But again, if you like that sort of thing, like that, you can understand why he becomes like a, a fan favorite. We've talked about the kids, we've talked about the villain, but there's one other element here at play, which is the parents, right? And we've alluded to this before: are they good parents or are they bad parents? So, what are your thoughts on these parents? Because, yeah, I, I want to unpack that a little bit. I mean, it feels very of the era, right? Mm. In terms of the the way they depict parents and marriages, I think in particular, but adults in general as well. You know, it's like the parents are absent, they're drunk, they're divorced, they're very punitive. Like the father character is really kind of awful. And then, you know, you find out, of course, halfway through the movie that the reason Freddie is hunting the teens is because mm-hmm. they killed Freddie, right? Right. And... They did it because he was in the script, in the text, he was killing kids in the neighborhood yes. and then like justice wasn't done, but, you know, through the court system. So they like took it upon themselves to murder him, basically. Yeah. And so there are all these very, very broken people. It's kind of the bottom line. And the mom in particular gets a lot of, of screen time kind of talking about her yeah. her history with this character and how she's struggling with it. So like it's it's interesting But I also feel like it's a plot device in the sense that it means that the teens are on their own, right? And so, like, they're not going to get help from their parents. They can't go to them. The parents don't believe them. The parents are, like, kind of inept at helping. And I feel like there are a lot of other movies that kind of play with this same idea of the parents being absent in one way or another. But I think it's also representative of the time, right, of, like, where people were really worried about rising divorce rates and and all of that kind of stuff. And, well, it's interesting. Yeah. What I was going to say is interesting is that, like, on the one hand, because you say they're powerless to help, but, like, one of the parents is a cop. He's powerless despite being, at least at the time, they're the protectors. The representative of the law, right? Yeah, and he, but he's powerless. But part of what's interesting is that part of the reason why they are powerless is that Freddie only attacks in their dreams. So right. even if the parents did do something, like, what can they do? They can't go into somebody else's dream. Although that's... I guess they kind of can because, like, Glenn's showing up in Nancy's dreams. And well, they could, they could kind unclear, of help, but... right? Like, because, yeah. you know, she asked Glenn to stay awake while she right. was in the dream and stuff like that. So it's like, if they sort of cared to believe them, then there are ways they could help, but they won't even kind of listen, you know? But, of course, then at the end of the film, Nancy is able to bring Freddie into the real world, and she's asking for her dad's help, and he kind of just totally... Shit's screws it up yeah yeah one of the things i did want to sort of talk about though is this idea of like the formation of freddie because like you said in the text of the film as released he's a child murderer he's let off on a technicality and the parents are like we need to get revenge and they, they murder him but originally he was supposed to be a child molester right which is way darker right and i guess there was some news stories of like a daycare that this was sort of actually going on and then Oof. everybody got cold feet and they're like, okay, let's, let's take that element out. Yeah. But, and then they brought it back for the 2010 remake, obviously. Right. It's all implied though, too, in the movie, like it's yeah. not said out loud, but like all of the sort of sexuality, like the bathtub and the, and, and, you know, he's flicking his tongue and all sorts of yeah, kind of gross I, stuff I, like but that. But that's the thing. I do think it, I don't know. I kind of feel like it to our point of like Freddie's less menacing it almost does kind of suffer by that not being the element because I do think it then adds an extra, even grosser, creepier layer to that character. That I mean, maybe is like yeah. you said is implied, but like if it's more, 
I don't know. It's I, I... It, it kind of weirdly fits, though, with the parent stuff in that, like, it's almost like they're just not saying it. Right. You know? It, because, right. like, okay. because, yeah, because when fair. the, you know, the kids are experiencing it. Like, there's a whole sexual level to what he's doing in the movie that is very, very disturbing. And the kids experience it directly, but the parents kind of talk around it in yeah, a weird way. True. You know, that's all subtext, but I feel like that intent definitely co- comes across in a lot of the scenes where he's attacking the, the teens. This also is an interesting, like, pairing with the Karate Kid, not just because yeah. it's of the same era. It might even be the same, like, year or two release difference. But, like, remember how we discussed in great detail how we felt the mom character in the Karate Kid was actually, like, a really great mom like it was a yeah. divorced mom but like she 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 was such a wonderful character mm-hmm. whereas in this nancy's mom is just a mess a me- total mess totally useless right they're both like you know swimming in the same water here right they're both yeah. responding to the same world yep. of movies before them they're also responding to like this particular cultural moment and they both take place in la kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> right so right. you know that's one of the things i find interesting about this movie is that you know it's very, very clearly meant to be L.A., right? They're talking about earthquakes, right? There's yep. a scene where Nancy and, and Glenn go to a very famous place in L.A., the um, Venice Canals. And they're walking over right. a bridge, right? So it's like, it's very clearly Los Angeles. But then later in the series, I guess, it gets retconned to be Ohio, <laughs> um, which is bizarre, but, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's like they're both... Both the Karate Kid and this are playing off of the movie depiction of Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Karate Kid, we talked about, like, it's showing a very different side of Los Angeles. It's showing Reseda. It's showing the golf and stuff. In this, it's showing all of the places that you expect to see in a movie that takes place in Los Angeles. Apparently, the high school even was uh, where Grease was shot and Pretty in Pink, right? So it's like... Yeah, so it's like, it's really definitely playing off of those other teen movies, right? And the sort of visual language of that. But then it's showing the dark underbelly of those same spots that you're used to seeing, right? Of like these parents that are actually kind of broken and, you know, these teens that are on their own who are just trying to figure things out without any help, right? Like, so, like I said, they're, they're playing off of all the same stuff. They just take it in totally different directions. Well, it's interesting, too, because, like you say, it's very clearly supposed to be L.A., but it's also, like, the suburbs, and it's kind of any town USA, but it's not any town USA. Like, it's just, it's an interesting sort of, and I don't know how much of that is just the, like, we're making this movie for a million dollars. We gotta, you know, we gotta do what we gotta do. But all of these sort of horror movies, like, that is very much, they're always set in any town USA, and usually, like, the Midwest, despite them always being shot in, like, Pasadena, (laughs) California or something. Like, it's... You know, right. But that's all like Halloween's like that screams like that. Friday the 13th is a camp. So it's a little bit different. But like, yeah, clearly it's the idea that these monsters can be anywhere. So like, let's set it in, you know, any town USA. But yeah, it's inter- it right. is definitely interesting. And the production design, obviously, of this movie is, you know, I think that's definitely a huge standout mm-hmm. in terms of like setting it above the sort of schlocky slasher films of the era. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of twists in this movie, but, like, mm-hmm. my favorite one is actually this slow burn of the set that all the dreams take place in, right? Right. So the beginning of the movie, like, it's the first thing you see is this set, right? Yeah. And at first, you're kind of like, uh, it's like a generic, scary dream set, right? But yeah. then 
over the course of the movie, you start to realize that it's like, no, this is where in real life, Freddy Krueger had his lair, right? This is the boiler yeah. room with the furnace that kills him, right? You know, some of the, the twists are, are like more dramatic, but I love that this thing that you're introduced to, it literally in the first shots of the film takes on greater significance as the movie goes on. Yeah, I think it's such a brilliant form of storytelling and, and you know, laying that groundwork and teasing it out and, and oh, is this just supposed to be like some sort of hellscape because it's, you know, right. fire and steam and brimstone. Like, but no, like like you said, no, there is a story reason for this. And that's what separates Wes Craven from the pack. Like there's layers to this onion that we're peeling back. And I, I love that. So so let's talk a little bit about like the cinematography and the, and the editing. I think it's it's very simple in a lot of ways, but mm -hmm. very effective, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed for sure is, especially in the early parts of the film, when they're still not showing the character as much and they're building up the tension, there are a lot of these sort of stalker cam moments where yes. the camera's like following Nancy down the street from behind and she's kind of looking back and things like that, or peeping in through a window and all of that kind of stuff, which I thought was pretty effective. Did you have any kind of favorite moments in terms of uh, the visual language, I guess, of the film? Yeah, I think there's a very clear delineation between the two worlds, which I think is really interesting because it mm -hmm. kind of allows you to sort of tease out, oh, are we in the dream world or are we not? Right, which is a big question. Yeah, and that becomes very important at the very, you know, in the final act. W one of the things that the the cinematographer mentioned is anytime they go into the, like, the dream world, they pumped in a ton of smoke and like it becomes this really sort of like heavily lit spooky atmosphere. But I, yeah, the, one of the things that I love that they do is they very clearly thought stuff through yeah. and bring elements of one world into the next. Like there's that great shot near the end where she comes out of the dream and she falls and she's got the rose bushes or whatever. And she falls back into the bed and then it pulls back to reveal she's in the bed. And like they've obviously just pulled the props out of the way, but like stuff like that, where it's you're you're sort of bringing both worlds together. And I, I always love those kind of moments in film where they're thinking about, OK, how are we going to edit this scene transition or this stuff together? And I, I love how this film handles that. But also, too, like, you know, I think of the moment when she has the dream in class and, you know, that that shot of the girl in the body bag and then the bag being dragged through the hallway and, and the legs just sort of lift up out of nowhere. But then, you know, you've got the smoke coming in and the leaves are blowing in and then she starts to head right. down to the, like, it's just, yeah, there's, again, the visual language of this film, it's not flashy necessarily, but it's very evocative and creepy. It works really, really well to sort of build that brooding sense of, something is going to happen. Yeah. And I think it does that in a way that, you know, again, with just a traditional sort of slasher movie, you don't get any of that because it's relying all on jump scares. Totally. Yeah. I, I feel like the way that the cinematography, the editing and the production design all come together to create these surreal effects, right? These sort of mm -hmm. dreamlike effects is really, really effective throughout the film. I, yeah, I hadn't considered that, just like how complicated actually thinking some of that stuff through would be, you know, because the way the film is edited does not necessarily announce itself. It's very subtle. Yeah, it's very subtle. But but again, it would have taken a lot of planning to get some of those scenes to work right. So mm -hmm. I think that's very cool. One of the few times, I guess, that the, that the editing does sort of make itself very known is that there are a few fade to blacks throughout the film that 
usually are used as a transition between the waking world and the sleeping world, right? So right. it's like shot of Nancy's face and then, and then it fades to black as her eyes are closing, things like that. But one of the really cool things that I feel like they did is they use that a few times, but then they start breaking the rule, right? And so you, you know, you're used to seeing it, you know, fade to black and then we wake up in the dream world, right? Um, but then they stop doing it and you're not sure anymore whether you're yeah. in the dream world or not. I thought that was a really nice way of using the medium to really also help create that sense of, of the story progressing. Totally, totally. So one moment I didn't love. <laughs> now that we're kind of into the meat of the film. So, you know, yeah. the setting and the characters, you know, one of the first things that happens is all the teens, they go to school, they find out that they're all having the same dream, right, with, with Freddy Krueger. And then they go to English class and basically the teacher's like, let me tell you the themes of this film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Using Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which I can't think of what other movies I've seen this trope in, but it's definitely used a lot. <laughs> you know, maybe this was one of the earlier ones. Well, to that end, let's let's discuss some of the things that we maybe didn't love. Because okay. I don't think this movie is without faults or flawless. Um mm-hmm. But specifically, let's dig into the sort of final act, because I would say as much as I really enjoy this film, the final act is where it arguably kind of goes off the rails or at least gets a little silly. And I'm yes, I'm referring to the Home Alone-esque booby trapping sequence <laughs> that uh, right. or, or also Alone. before Home Alone or the Skyfall sequence, you could almost. Yeah, call it. it's, that's it's, true. She kind of does some of the same things that James Bond does in Skyfall. And that's my least favorite part of Skyfall is when he. Home Alone's everything. You know, the idea is that she's going to try and bring Freddy into the to the real world because that's the only way she can stop him. And so she sets a bunch of booby traps up in her house. And I love the scene where she literally, like, holds out a pamphlet that's like... Yeah. I can't remember what it actually says, but it effectively should just say, homemade booby traps. Like, yeah. let's just tell the audience what we're about to do here. And even right. Johnny Depp is kind of like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they sort of set up all of these uh, tools that she's going to use in the final act, right? Because Johnny Depp's telling her about, like, Balinese dream skills or something. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. I tried looking that up, and I, I think it's just completely made up or, or, you know, very, very adapted from some kind of real thing. But, you know, he's telling her about that stuff, and then she's also learning about homemade booby traps and meanwhile, usually we save this for later, but this is a, a moment that feels kind of like a Simpsons joke where, mm-hmm. you know, she's getting more and more hepped up on these caffeine pills and coffee Hep and all this pills, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And her mom is really getting concerned about her. So she checks on her before she's supposedly going to bed and Nancy's pretending like she's going to go to sleep. And her mom like unplugs a coffee maker and takes away the coffee and the pills and go, leaves the room. And then as soon as she's out, Nancy pulls a whole working coffee maker from <laughs> under her bed and a mug from under her pillow and starts drinking again. And it's just yeah. like, it starts to get to this very kind of silly cartoony place. And yeah, it does it does remind me a lot of Home Alone. And it's funny how the exact same sort of plot element can be used in a comedy and in a horror movie. But yeah, totally. I, I, when was the last time you watched Home Alone? Like the 90s or recently? No, like we uh, recently. And I, I mean, I don't have the love for Home Alone that everybody else does. I, I think we did watch it maybe this year. Or la- like certainly within the last yeah. couple years. I mean, I I hadn't watched it in a long time. And I remember liking it when I was a kid. So we yeah. watched it during the pandemic, I think. And 
it's really horrifying. It's really horrifying. It's it's not funny. It's like yeah. the things that happen to the burglars are like scarier than what happens to Freddy Krueger yeah. in this movie. It's funny you say that because I do remember when I watched it as a kid, there was like a moment or two that genuinely scared me, like with yeah. like Joe Pesci burning his hand or something. Like, and I right. just remember like, oh, that I didn't like that. Like, just a lot of like burns and puncture wounds and like all sorts of horrible stuff that happens. Yeah, but it's like, but again, and in Elm Street, like it's silly. Like the you know she yeah. she sets the, the sledgehammer, like, the hammer above above her door, and then like he walks through and he gets it in the gut, and he's just like, oh, like it's just yeah. it's very goofy. And right. not in that sort of like what we were referring to earlier, where you're using humor to sort of break the tension to ratchet it up again, like because this whole sequence is supposed to be. It's not intended to be funny. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's supposed to be intended to be funny. It doesn't doesn't feel like it. But I also want to talk like, what did you think of the last twist? And apparently like this was a whole controversy because late in the game the producers knew like we might have a hit on our hand we got to set this up for a sequel mm. and so there are like six different endings to this film that were shot she effectively has triumphed she's defeated freddy everything's hunky-dory gets into the car and then nope not so much freddy's back and then there's the really really weird like very cheesy mom gets pulled through the door moment I, which so i, I actually love that i think that that oh that, really I, that so I love the moment of the mom getting pulled through the door because it I I actually have no idea how they did that it looks oh. crazy like it's it's very cartoony but it's also like how did they do that well, she literally looks like she turns into like an inflated like balloon yeah, and just gets pulled through the door it's, an, it's, art, it's an articulated dummy that they used in multiple like they literally explain it in either the commentary or the documentary I watched, but yeah. they're basically like, yeah, this is one of the articulated dummies we use. We just redressed it as the mom and then basically pull her through the window. But yeah, it's pretty that, crazy looking. Like I, I enjoyed that last gag, but oh, see that, that doesn't work for me because uh, it's so crazy looking. It's like, if it looked better, maybe it would be, or even just the hand coming out over the mouth. Like that moment is really crazy and scary. Right, and I'm right. like, that's a great final scare. But that moment of the shitty dummy being pulled through the window just looks so cheesy to me that it, kind of i don't know i mean for me it looked very fake but i I couldn't figure out how they did it and so for me it wasn't like um you know oh that's so cheesy it was just sort of like i don't know what i just saw right Right. because it almost looks like she collapses like she's being deflated as she gets pulled through the window it's very weird but yeah okay so in terms of the actual plot twist i didn't love it and and it's partly because again we've been talking about how so much of this movie it's they're so careful about like how everything kind of makes sense. And then, but yeah. then as the movie goes on, it starts to lose that a little bit and, and becomes yeah. a little bit lazier, I guess. Like, you know, yeah. Reading the book on booby traps. It's like, okay, well <laughs> it's not like, it's not like she kind of discovered something about Freddie, like Freddie's weakness. I mean, the dream skills thing is sort of supposed to be that it's like, Oh, if you pretend you don't yeah. believe in him or you don't believe in him, then he'll disappear. But then that turns out to not have worked. Right. So it's like, that's the thing is they, they kind of take the wind out of the sails of what they were building up to. Yeah. And it doesn't really make any sense why it didn't work. Right. They don't explain it in any way. Well, and that's the thing. It's my understanding is that Wes Craven was very reticent to do this. And he basically straight up said, he's like, well, but the whole point is that she succeeded. But then by having this twist ending, which they're clearly doing to set up a sequel. Right. That that you're saying, well, no, just kidding. Everything we just showed you was 
for not. The one thing I do love is the book ending of how it then pans away to the the girl's jumping rope, and I, I yeah, that's a great because in part. Which we see at the beginning of the movie as well. And again, in one of the documentaries or something, someone says, my interpretation is that Nancy's been in a dream or basically everything is a dream up until the ending. And the idea is she's seeing what's now actually about to happen. And that's what the the jump rope scene is supposed to imply is that like now it's taking you back to the beginning, which is like that's maybe a bit of a stretch. But that's the only thing from that ending that works is the sort of the yeah, like that full circle moment. But otherwise, yeah, I I, and there are different endings. Like I said, they shot a bunch of different endings. And I think this is sort of like a culmination of all of them. But like the car turning into Freddy and I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the thing is like a couple things. If they didn't make it so explicit that she won, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have bothered me so much. Right. Okay, like, fair enough. Fair because enough, yeah. like, you know, she turns away and then Freddy attacks her. And you watch him yeah. as the viewer. You watch him disappear. Right. Yeah. Whereas like, for example, if you were in Nancy's shoes in that scene and she turns around She's afraid that he's going to attack her, but then she finds her resolve and is like, no, I don't believe in you. And then just nothing happens, but you don't yeah, see. Yeah, right. That's, that's the way you do it. Right. And and that so like works. she turns around, he's gone, everything's back to normal, and then she wakes up, right? Yeah. Then it would be like, okay, so she must have won, I guess, right? But you're and not sure. The and then there's the yeah, twist, right? the twist, yeah. Or, you're right. or she fully wins, right? She fully wins and, and everything. And then you just get like, one final teaser that he's still alive somehow, right? Yeah. That, but but it's not like as big as that ending, right? So it's like everything yeah. do, is actually okay, but then you get this sense that no, maybe he's still around. You know, like yeah, there I, there was I, a way that they could have set up the sequel or made the twist ending really really work, but it's just dis it's dissonant with the way that the the movie builds to the climax. I think. And I haven't I haven't actually seen the second film because I've heard yeah. mixed things, but I all I know is that. Nancy is not in it. It doesn't follow her at all. Right. So in the end, it's like, it doesn't, you could have not done this, had a decent ending and still just made more because Freddy just becomes this omnipresent. Like it, it kind of, the, the mythology of it kind of goes out the window anyway. So it's like, I don't know that they needed to do, but you know, it's, that was just what they, that's what you did at the time. So it's, so it's unfortunate because I think the last act and especially the ending is the part of the film that doesn't work on the whole i think it's a very very effective film yeah it kind of yeah it bums me out that they just didn't stick the landing which unfortunately i would say is sort of the problem with most horror movies is like they just it's very hard to nail the ending of horror movies and this one unfortunately just doesn't do it right right it's so close though to almost like a twilight zone twist right yeah but then it just doesn't quite nail it you know yeah anyway was there anything else about the film that you didn't particularly love i mean i i already kind of alluded to this but i think the pacing is just not it's not as good as scream <laughs> right which is a high yeah. bar right you know yeah i mean sure. it's a very very high bar same director you know i mean and he just kind of nails it in that movie but i think the thing is scream is just like all killer no filler so to speak yeah right and, yeah. It, and, it, and <laughs> no it, pun intended yeah right <laughs> and it's a constant ride from front to back whereas this i feel like has slow moments but they're not effective at giving you that moment to breathe they just feel slow to me i think the other counterpoint would be like the exorcist right which is a very slow moving movie that has these moments of terror but the Mm -hmm. slowness helps build the sort of creepy texture of the movie 
And this doesn't do that so much. The slow scenes are just dialogue between characters, but but they aren't the they aren't the most exciting parts of the movie often. Um, right. You know, yeah. and they don't build the build up the sort of atmosphere in the same way as something like The Exorcist does. But I don't know. How do you feel about that? You know, I, I don't know that I never would have noticed that. Like, I always sort of appreciate the fact that the film is like, is it 90 minutes on the dot? Like, I think it might be. Yeah. It's 91 minutes. And I've always said no movie should be longer than 90 minutes. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate the, in the commentaries and stuff, they all sort of say that the economy of storytelling that Wes has, like, I yeah. appreciate that there isn't a ton of filler. Like there mm-hmm. are moments that maybe don't work as well. So I, I don't know that I would necessarily agree, but I see when you sort of put it that way, I, I get what you're saying. For me, it never feels overly long, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because I think even Scream, because it's it's just under two hours. And when I rewatch it, because I've rewatched it so many times, there are moments of that that I do feel are a little bit slower. Oh, interesting. Or could, some fat that could be trimmed, mm-hmm. but... Again, I don't know if that's just me now having seen it so many times that it's like I just get to my favorite moments. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I don't disagree, but I don't agree. Like I see both sides of it. So, yeah, we've already discussed this a little bit, but let's just talk about a few other of this, the moments that feel like Simpsons jokes that aren't. The one that immediately jumped out to me was when she's in the dream and she's like, Glenn, are you still watching? And he literally comes out of the bushes <laughs> like Homer. Yes. He's like. Yeah, so, like, he's still there. like, And I think that's one of those moments where they're doing a little bit of levity to just, like, help the audience get a chuckle and sort of calm down a bit, only to nail them a few minutes later. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, obviously some of the Freddy gags, too, are, are very silly. Like, the phone turning into his mouth gag is right. one that okay. stands out as being both disgusting and, and, and creepy, but also kind of, like, silly, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely, I feel like, moves towards like the character that he becomes in the later films where there's a sort of sense of humor behind the stuff. It's not just, he's torturing them with surreal dream stuff. It's not just like slasher stuff. Okay, well, let's change gears here and let's dig into the true Simpsons connections. And obviously, as we said, what makes this unique is that the Simpsons did a full-scale front-to-back parody of this in one of the episodes of Treehouse of Horror. So let's talk about Treehouse of Horror in general. I have to admit, and this is going to be a very unpopular opinion. Oh, no. Whenever I am rewatching Simpsons series or seasons, I tend to skip these episodes. No! I don't really like them. Adam! (laughs) It's true. Oh, God. But it's so funny because, because I normally skip them, I don't know them like the back of my hand. So when I was rewatching wow. it for this one and I texted you, I was like, oh, I forgot how funny this was. Like, yeah. but I think part of that is just because I haven't seen them to death. And I think part of the reason I don't love them is that they don't exist within the continuity of the show, which is what makes them unique. They're vignettes. So like each act is a different story. So they're shorter stories. They tend to be parody-esque. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe part of it is too is just like it's kind of like watching a Christmas episode in July. Like if it's not Halloween, it feels weird sure. to watch a Halloween episode. So that's also why I tend to skip them. That I I get that. Yeah. But I just feel like it also feels like one of those things that as the series went on, they felt obligated to do and they started getting weaker and weaker. And so I mm. just started skipping them more and more often. So, yeah, it was really funny to watch this again because, like I said, I I hadn't watched this in so long 
that I forgot, A, that some of my all-time favorite Simpson jokes actually came from this episode, and B, how genuinely funny it was. So, but that's, that's, so that's my hot take. Don't love the True House of Horror episodes. Tend to skip them. My God, man. I, so I, I'm the opposite. I love these episodes, and they are some of my most memorable Simpsons moments, I feel oh, like. See, the ones so the ones that are, like, seared in my brain, like, I know them front to back, and the right. images, too. Like, And this one in particular is one I remember from my childhood a lot, right? Partly because huh, it was, it was always on, but I love all three of the, the segments in this episode. Um, you know, particularly... The, the last one with the computer yes. animation is like... I was going to say, wow, that's... At, at that time, that was a big deal, you know? Yeah, th- that's what sets this episode apart, I think, from all the other ones. And, like, that was such a groundbreaking moment, both in terms of the series, but also just in terms of, like, the technical aspects of what they were doing. We'll dig into that once we actually, like, get there. But, yeah, you're right. Like, this, this, this had something unlike anything we had really seen before right. so well and i think too you know speaking to the, the premise of this podcast too because mm. these were so parody heavy like number yeah. one i wasn't familiar with almost any of the movies any of the no. the tv shows no. that they were not at all that they were showing when i was watching this and so like these stories were wild to me right because they're parodies right. and you get more out of them if you've seen the source material but you don't have to right i mean like this segment uh, for Nightmare on Elm Street is is still really great if you've never seen the the, the movie, right? Well, because you get the whole story and like right. it's a like we said like it's a good story. So if it's just you take the same premise and add in some jokes, like yeah, yeah, it's gonna work. Like it's great, right? Right. Whether it was Nightmare on Elm Street or it was The Twilight Zone, I hadn't seen these movies, and so that was my first exposure to them. Was often through these Trios of Horror episodes and. It introduced me to that whole kind of sensibility, which the the Simpsons writers love of the the Mm -hmm. Twilight Zone twist ending, you know, poetic justice and all of those kinds of things that they really lean into in these episodes. Well, and to the writer's credit, I imagine it would be really difficult but fun to like if you're writing a cartoon show that's essentially a sitcom. This is your chance to sort of stretch your legs, change things up. Write in a way that you're not normally used to writing and is probably very refreshing, but um, it's like, that's not what I tune in for, so it just mm. feels, it can sometimes feel a little out of place, but yeah, you did enough. you did a little bit of background research into the actual, like, Treehouse of Horror premise, though. Yeah, um, a little a little bit. So, it's actually surprisingly hard to find very much about the inspirations for this beyond the fact that, you know, all the writers say that it was inspired by EC Comics, right? Right. And so EC Comics did like Tales from the Crypt and, and like that that whole kind of series of horror comics that often were these compilations, right? The one thing I was able to find is that it wasn't all of them that were inspired by this. It was specifically Matt Groening who, who brought it up um, oh, okay. as, a, as a possibility for kind of a tradition that the Simpsons could do starting in season two. And so obviously the sort of horror compilation is the main thing that they take from this. Often those comics were also narrated by a character. That that was the wraparound throughout all of the tales. And depending on the uh, season, you get some of that in Treehouse of Horror as well. This is one of the first seasons uh, where they stopped doing that, partly because it's a whole other segment to write, basically, number one. And also it takes away from the time to tell the actual core stories. stories. Yeah. So that makes it very, very difficult, I think, to do in, in like 22 minutes. 
Um, but yeah, and then the other thing that they take from the, the EC comic stuff, which you'll see again, depending on the season, is the scary names idea of kind right. of doing spooky versions of the writers' names. So that's kind of a fun nod. I think the other interesting thing about EC Comics, of course, is that they started out with these horror comics, but then they actually got cracked down on by Congress, who, you know, much <laughs> like like other sort of moral panics that happened later, they did not like these horror comics. They thought that they were, you know, ruining our children and contributing to delinquency and all sorts of crazy nonsense. So actually what they turned their attention to after this crackdown was Mad Magazine, right. another favorite of, of the, the Simpsons writers. Yeah, huge so, influence. Yeah, so I thought that was a kind of interesting connection as well. It makes sense that Matt Groening was the one who to kind of make this connection, or, or supposedly, I, you know, from what I could find, given that it is, you know, his background in comics, you know. Right, yeah. So yeah, you know, obviously, again, uh, on top of it being kind of a fun departure from the continuity of the show they could do they could break the rules like you're saying it's also really an outlet for the kind of geeky sense of humor that a lot of writers have that they don't usually get to use as much in the main show and this episode that we're going to talk about really showcases that and also it's a huge amount of work right yeah particularly for the animators because everything's new they have to create new versions of old characters in like different costumes, completely new settings, new monsters, like all of that stuff. So it's a lot of work, but again, they get to draw from influences that they wouldn't necessarily get to. Yeah, for sure. Well, and of course, it's so funny because when Nate and I sort of were coming up with the concept for this, like we wanted to talk about these films that were parodied on The Simpsons. And in our minds, there were lots and lots of episodes that were just like straight plot lifted from the movie and The Simpsons are just redoing it. And then what we discovered is like that actually like barely ever happens. But the place where it most frequently does happen is because within these Treehouse of Horror episodes because that's what you can do. You could take a segment and be like, okay, we're just going to steal the plot from a horror movie and then we'll just simplify it. And to your point, Nate, like I had never seen The Shining when I saw The Shining and I had never seen Nightmare on Elm Street when I saw Nightmare on Evergreen Terrace. So yeah, it really, this was in many ways my introduction to so many of these like classic horror sci-fi films that I would not go on to watch for probably at least 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Yeah, totally. So yeah, why don't we dig into this this specific uh, Treehouse of Horror. So Treehouse of Horror 6 took place in season 7. I've always cited season 7 and 8 as among my favorites, and the, mm-hmm. the number of episodes we've ended up talking about coming from season 7 is proving that to be true. So. Right, right. Yeah, so like I said, it's one of the seasons where they stopped doing the wraparound for Treehouse of Horror. It's also maybe I think it's the second Treehouse of Horror where they stopped giving a warning at the beginning. Right. So th- they started this with the very first one that they did. They had Marge come on and warn the audience that it's very scary and this kind of stuff. So it's, it's actually a parody of Frankenstein, which has a mm-hmm. similar warning at the beginning. But also the the writers and the the producers were genuinely worried that audiences were going to be scared and that they were going to get angry letters and that kind of stuff turned out to not be the case at all um <laughs> people loved it and like from the very beginning and by today's standards the original trio support is very very tame and they got more and more crazy more and more violent throughout the years and obviously the segment we're talking about is nightmare on evergreen terrace which 
was apparently written by because there's three credited writers on the the episode: John Schwartzwelder, the legendary John Schwartzwelder, Steve Tompkins, and David S. Cohen, also known as David X. Cohen, famous for uh, being the co-creator of Futurama. He obviously wrote the futuristic Homer Cubed episode. Mm-hmm. Schwartzwelder wrote the first segment, which was playing on his early days of working in advertising. And Tompkins wrote the uh, Nightmare on Evergreen Terrace segment. What's interesting about Tompkins is that, like, I was just looking this up. I th- he's got four writing credits, it seems. Huh? This, 22 short films about Springfield, which he, all the right. writers effectively wrote together. Simpsons spinoff showcase, another oh. sort of non-traditional episode. And the only, like, actual traditional Simpson episode that he is a credited writer on is A Millhouse Divided, the episode oh. where Millhouse's parents get separated good episode yeah definitely one of my all-time favorites so it's kind of interesting that this is a guy who you know he's not one of the like legends of the simpsons writing staff but certainly has contributed to some of my all-time favorite simpson episodes so definitely which i think is super interesting so yeah let's so let's because the episode is so short we can kind of go beat by beat here so just stop me whenever you want to um when you want to get off as it were and I will pause the video. Okay, boy, catch the frisbee. Good catch, boy. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> oh, hard luck. <laughs> Glad to wreck your acquaintance. (laughs) 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 (sighs) It was only a dream. (laughs) Mark, is that you? Yes. Take out the garbage. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's a it's a great opening. You know, I guess you were you found out that the this was sort of a parody of Tex Avery. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like it's it's it's. There's definitely like elements of the Warner Brothers, like Bugs Bunny cartoons, but the sort of like the eyes coming out and all like is very, very much a direct nod to director Tex Avery. Uh, He was crucial in the creation and evolution of famous animated characters such as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Elmer Fudd, Droopy, Screwy Squirrel, The Wolf, Red Red Hot Riding Hood and George and Junior. So, uh, so Got yes, it. he he was definitely a uh, Warner Brothers animator, but I think he sort of like famously kind of broke out on his own and created his own sort of characters. Um, oh. And then obviously the influence, you know, goes Ren and Stimpy, Animaniacs, The Mask, like all of these things, very much owe a right. debt to Tex Avery cartoons. In, but in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like when you think of animated cartoons, you yes, know, like exactly. this is this is like. You know, the car- the cartooniness of animated cartoons is Tex Avery. This has all my sort of like favorite kind of gags from those things. Like the I don't know why I find it so funny, but a cartoon character holding up a sign that says right. like yikes or whatever. That always just makes me chuckle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then obviously we get like the introduction of our Freddy Krueger slash Groundskeeper Willie character um, who immediately has a ridiculous pun that I gather is again probably making fun of more of the sequel movies where yeah. where Freddy Krueger is this kind of quippy character. Glad to rake your acquaintance, he says, <laughs> which is like which is borderline like Adam West Batman pun, like you know uh, that whatever it is the egghead, you know yeah. that kind yeah, of vibe. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's pretty good. <laughs> and then, and, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I love it. I love that series. And then, of course, Bart wakes up with the scratches on his yeah. stomach exactly like the, the movie. Again, it's almost beat for beat. And then I, I love Homer's last line here, too. You know, <laughs> it, which, again, reflects kind of the, the themes of the movie, too, of like, you know, the totally oblivious parent, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Right me across the chest. And the weirdest thing was, it was that school janitor who mysteriously disappeared. Groundskeeper Willie. Oh my god, Bart. Groundskeeper Willie was in my nightmare too. But he got me with hedge clippers. He ran his floor buffer over me. <laughs> <laughs> Children, I couldn't help monitoring your conversation. There's no mystery about Willie why he simply disappeared. Now, let's have no more curiosity about this bizarre cover-up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that. Skinner. I love that. Yeah, that just the Skinner line there just gets me every time. It's uh, it's perfect. And as you say, it's alluding to the parents who just you know they we're not going to talk about this out of sight, out of mind. Like it's it's right, a nice right. nod to that that whole element. So remember, class, the worse you do on this standardized test, the more funding the school gets. So don't <laughs> knock yourselves out. <laughs> you have three hours to finish. Uh, then put your head down on your desk and sit quietly. Ah, a duet of pleasures. Oh, I am God. a dervish of declension and a conjurer of conjugation with a million hit points and maximum charisma. Oh, RPG humor there. Day to die. Morit, he, she, or it dies. <laughs> Morris, you die. <laughs> You've mastered a dead tongue, but can you handle a live one? <laughs> Quietly, it's best the children don't see him. <laughs> oh, just get it out of here! Not into the kindergarten. <laughs> oh, I love that's that a good so one. much. That I, that I think that's actually my favorite scene. That whole run is like my favorite scene in this parody. It's just so perfect, and, and actually. I think it's the only one that doesn't have any parodies of the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Um, I gather that the whole scene where they're doing a test at school is taken from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which I have not seen, but I did look up the scene and watched it front to back. And it is very, very similar. All the kind of setup of the teacher handing out the tests and like all the way it's all shot and everything is very similar. But then the dream that Martin has is completely different and completely made up. And very, very funny. I appreciate all of the sort of geeky humor that they get to dive into there. Very, very on brand for Martin. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and then another great like moment with Groundskeeper Willie. Of course, the, the, the sort of punniness, you know, comes back. And I guess the tongue coming yes. out and, and grabbing him is also from another Nightmare. Yes, that's movie? that's in New Nightmare. The, the, the sort of meta one that I was talking to you about. Um, ah. It's a very weird scene, but yes, that that definitely is a nod to that. Which again, it's so hard to know. Like, is it a coincidence, or did the right were the writers big fans of New Nightmare and went right. went and saw it and like knew that that I, I don't know, but right, I right. for me for me though the like the funniest gag is the revealing of his corpse and then the button of no, not into the kindergarten. Like <laughs> that is just that is pure Simpsons goodness that made me laugh out loud when I watched this on my own the other night. 
Yeah, totally. What? Martin died at school today. Ooh, I don't see what that has to do with Groundskeeper Willie. <laughs> um, we didn't mention Groundskeeper Willie, Mom. Mm. Kids, it's time we told you the true story and put your fears to rest. It's a story of murder and revenge from beyond <laughs> the grave. It all started on the 13th hour of the 13th day of the 13th month. We were there to discuss the misprinted calendars the school had purchased. <laughs> oh, lousy smart weather. <laughs> Do not touch Willie. Good advice. <laughs> Our next budget item, $12 for doorknob repair. Hey. <laughs> Recharge fire extinguishers. Uh, now this is a free service of the fire department. <laughs> Ah! 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 Help! Please help me! Willie, please. Mr. Van Houten has the floor. Uh, I, for one, would like to see the cafeteria menus in advance so parents can adjust their dinner menus accordingly. Uh, I don't like the idea of Millhouse having two spaghetti meals in one day. <laughs> With your children's blood! All right, how are you gonna get them? Skeleton power? Oh, strike. <laughs> Where you cannot protect them? In their dreams. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, I, you know, I just was like, yeah, that test scene is my favorite. That's also pretty great. That whole it's so run. Bad. So just packed with with gags. I love it so much. Um, and also, too, like the character design of Flaming Skeleton Willie is very good. Yeah. Um, like he's very creepy and scary. And I, I was like, is this referencing something? I don't know. But it kind of has that Ray Harryhausen feel to like in the Jason and the Agronauts skeletons. Like it just. Yeah. yeah Army of Darkness. Yeah, exactly. It, it kind of feels of of that era which i which i really like yeah totally no I, I i love that and you know there's just so many good jokes in there again keeping with the theme of the parents being kind of terrible and they're the reason he dies but in this it's not because they tried to kill him because he did something bad it's because they're just so cheap that he dies yeah, yeah exactly it's so self-involved that line from uh, kirk van houten is also great <laughs> about the spaghetti meals that that's pretty funny yeah no it's it's very good don't you realize what this means? The next time we fall asleep, we could die. Eh, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> On this edition of Asian Market Wrap-Up, there's a volcano waiting to erupt in the Pacific Rim. It's nine medium-term convertible adventures. <laughs> it's no use, Bart. We can't stay up forever. You're right. The only thing left to do is go into my dream and force Willie into a final showdown. You stay awake, and if it looks like I'm in trouble, wake me up. Okay, but promise you won't be grouchy. <laughs> Come on, Willie. I know you're out there. Sandbox. 
boy. You missed a spot. When I'm done with you, they'll have to do a compost mortem. <laughs> for good. Now I can get back to my normal dreams. Me and Krusty winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> Bart, there's two seconds left. Now listen up. It's your basic Statue of Liberty play. With one twist, you throw it to me. Newt Rockney called it the forward pass. Now, the clock's still running, so it's important we start this play as quickly as possible. Ah! Oh, oh, boy. Don't dream about me no more, kid. <laughs> help! Lisa, help! Bart, you're in trouble! Wake up! Wait a minute. If you're here... Then you've fallen asleep, too! I'm not asleep, I'm just resting my eye... Uh-oh. <laughs> Goodbye, Bart. Goodbye, Elise. Hope you get reincarnated as someone who can stay awake for 15 minutes. Tells me Willie's still out there, and that he could come back any time in any form and kill us in ways we can't even imagine. I love that. I love, I love Willie just coming back and going, boo. Yes. So I, well, and I love, you know, like Lisa builds up the whole twist that happens in the movie, of course, where he does come back and it's unexpected. But she's saying, oh, it's going to be like in ways we can't even imagine. And then he just gets off a bus and he brought a gun with him. That was, yeah. that was the <laughs> what he ended up deciding to do. So, yeah, I love, man, the, the animation and the sound design in that conclusion is so, so good. Of just, you know, the creativity of having him be the lawnmower and then, like, a giant bagpipe spider. And mm -hmm. you can hear the bagpipe sound kind of, like, swelling throughout that whole scene. It's very cool. Yeah, it's great because, like, the first two-thirds is, like, all gags, basically. And then in the yeah. last third, it's just, like, almost like a, a really good you know, movie, like an action yeah, sequence, basically. Good, good horror, horror fair. It, it's funny, you mentioned the, the sound design, which is something that we really haven't talked at all at length about, but it's, uh, I was watching this with the commentary the other night, and they referenced this great sound design, especially in the first uh, segment in this episode, the attack of the 50-foot eyesores. There's some amazing sound design. The Simpsons, I, I believe his name is Travis Powers, their their lead sort of sound guy. And he the work that they do on this show, it's something that I didn't obviously notice as much as a kid. But as I got older and was more sort of keenly aware of it, especially with the like DVDs with the surround sound and everything. The sound design on this show is like very, very good. Like it's highly underrated, I think, because obviously there's lots of like reference type sound designs like in again in that first segment. There's the Godzilla call and stuff, but right. yeah, just even little things like the foley of Lisa's shoes and, and the, the metal, like, yeah, I just, I've always found the sound design to be sort of one of the unsung 
um, heroes of the show. So yeah, it's nice to see it get to, to you know them get to have even more fun because they're doing a, a, a Halloween episode. Right. Yeah, and to, and then just also like the animation, a couple like amazing animation moments in this. When Bart first goes into the dream, he's sort of like turns around on the couch and then like right. the whole surreal school scene is behind him. Apparently that is also a Nightmare on Elm Street 3 reference, Dream mm-hmm. Warriors, uh, where there's a very, very similar shot. And then the other animation moment that's that's great, which is a different parody, is when you have Willie sinking into the into the sinky sand, <laughs> sinky as he sand. calls it. Yeah, right? exactly. And he's sort of transforming into all these different things, I believe is a parody of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, where okay. the T-1000 is like sinking into, I think it's like molten it's iron molten or something. Yeah, 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 and, and, and he's sort of like transforming wildly as he sinks in. So that, that's also pretty cool. But again, very awesome that they just like came up with all of these different forms that he has, and they're all with tartan, which I imagine mm-hmm. is probably no you know, small feet to kind of get it to wrap around all of those yeah, objects. Yeah, to draw so, all that would be kind of a nightmare. But. Yeah, yeah. So really good. I uh, love that. But then also the way they come back to the couch at the end of that dream is amazing. Where yeah, it's, it's like so good. they're like blown off of the earth and then sort of orbit around a moon that looks like a couch and then land exactly where they are. And then there's just like a cutting on form to them in the living room. Amazing. It's just it looks so, so, so good. Yeah, and like we said, it's on the whole like it's it it does a really great job of sort of condensing that that first Nightmare on Elm Street movie effectively into a you know seven ish minute segment of an animated series. So um, it's I like I said, and like I said before, I I forgot how good slash funny it was until I rewatched it, and I was like, oh okay, you know maybe I need to not skip these every time. But we we should talk a little bit about the other segments i'm the first segment is you know it's it's, it's fine it's, it's fine not it's not great it's got a couple fun movie references like you know it's got the the godzilla scream it's got the hat from mr stapa from ghostbusters and obviously the ending is a parody of of plan nine from outer mm-hmm. space but homer cubed it's the thing that everybody remembers from this episode because right. it was 3d animation which at the time unless you lived in Canada and were big reboot fans like we were, yeah. uh, you didn't really see a lot of 3D animation on television or really at all because this even predates Toy Story by, a, I think you said it predates it by like a month? Yeah, it was like, it was released the same year. So it was a, around that same time when a lot of people were suddenly be, becoming aware that this was uh, a possibility, I guess, for animation. But yeah. And the, it, and the thing that sort of strikes me is like, it still looks pretty good good like obviously yeah. it's very stylized as as you kind of had to be at that time mm-hmm. but on the whole like it I, obviously it's weird seeing those characters rendered in 3d and they've always been weird seeing rendered in 3d but the animation and the quality of it still still looks pretty good like 25 years later yeah totally i you know it is it is amazing how well it translates and then when he goes into the real world at the end of that mm-hmm. episode it also it's pretty good. Like it holds yeah. up pretty well uh, in terms of how they did it. I was actually the thing that I noticed this time around, because it's something that they always talk about being the tricky part with combining live action with animation, be it 2D or 3D, is eye lines. Yeah. And the eye lines on it are like spot on. Like when the people are looking at Homer, like they are looking him in the eye and then looking him mm-hmm. up and down and like it, it totally plays and they do it better than some big budget Hollywood movies do today. Yeah, for sure. It is funny that we had a, a little bit of a preview of all of this stuff in Canada, right? 
we were already watching 3D animated stuff on TV in 1994. So about the year before this, um, yeah. and maybe even before that, because there were, so there was a reboot, which I love. I've watched the whole yep. series. I love it. I will yep. talk about it. Any it's a time. classic. Um, yeah. Cl- great, great, great kids TV show with lots and lots of computer humor, which was right up my alley at the time. And then before that, you also had these shorts that would happen in between shows on public television called short circuit. And yeah. They were just like these really surreal animated shorts, but it was all 3D animation. And so I feel like, you know, we were already really excited about the possibilities of this before this happened. And of course, it's got there are lots of great jokes. Like, you know, I do love that that joke and the running gag of did anybody see that movie Tron and how long it goes. It's like, uh, did anyone see the movie Tron? No. 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 Yes. I mean, I mean, no, no. Right. I love, I love when Homer gets to the the 3D dimension and says, "This place looks expensive." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Exactly. It's that. It's 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 definitely the most, if not the most, memorable Simpsons Halloween segment of all time. Yeah. Well, as we wrap things up, we now get to the extra credit section of the show, where we sort of talk about, you know, if you enjoyed this movie. What else should you check out? And uh, there's a couple obvious choices here. Like, there's plenty more of Nightmare on Elm Street to dig into if you want to. Like I said, I have not seen all of them. I've only seen the ones that I've been told are worth watching, which is Nightmare 3, which is actually interesting because it's the return of Wes Craven. He doesn't direct, but he actually writes the story. And I think he also wrote the screenplay, or at least a a pass at the screenplay. Mm. And he's a producer on that one. And actually involves Frank Darabont, who famously wrote and directed uh, Shawshank Redemption and another very dark uh, horror film, The Mist. I don't... Did you ever see The Mist? No, I haven't. Oh, it's very good, but it is a gut punch of a movie. But yeah, so he was certainly involved with with Nightmare 3. And it was also... And it's famous for also being one of Patricia Arquette's first, if not her very first movie. And yeah, it's very different, but it's really entertaining and enjoyable. And then, as I mentioned before, Noom Nightmare, which was, I think, the seventh entry. And so Wes Craven finally comes back, and it is a very, very meta film because it takes place in, quote-unquote, the real world, and Freddy has come back to haunt Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy in in the original film, mm-hmm. and she's got a family, and and Freddie like kidnaps her son, and it's it's a whole thing, and it's Wes Craven's in it as Wes Craven, and he's like, I gotta write this to free myself from Freddie and all this stuff. So <laughs> it's it's got the meta humor and meta horror and like all the meta textual elements that sort of would then come back much stronger and much better executed in Scream. Sure, so. sure, yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. I haven't seen either of those, so maybe I'll have to add those to the list. I've also been watching the latest season of Stranger Things, so season four, and it draws very, very heavily from this movie in particular. I won't even say that the Freddy franchise, but really this movie, it, it goes through a lot of the same beats and kind of, you know, the villain, the villain is also like a monster that attacks in their dreams and that kind of thing. But, you know, there's also like a new character in this season that is sort of a falsely accused bad boy type character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do, they do some good things to mix it up though, too. So like for that character, for example, they bring in like a whole satanic panic sort of aspect of it. He's like a a Dungeons and Dragons player and they're all worried that Mm. like doing satanic rituals and that kind of thing. So I feel like they do, they add a nice cultural commentary on the eighties that that's like easier to see in, in retrospect. So I like that. 
But yeah, if you're a Stranger Things fan anyways, it's very cool to watch this movie and then uh, watch this latest season and really see how, how it was influenced by that. Yeah, I only watched the first season and didn't like, I didn't dislike it, but didn't love it. And then mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of people told me that the second season sucked and then I never watched the second season. So I'm not caught up with it, but other people have been telling me like this season has been amazing. So yeah. like, you really should, you really should check it out. So I it think I will. Downs. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm tempted to add it to my very long list of things <laughs> that I have to watch. So. Well, let's let's wrap things up, Nate. What is your overall verdict on A Nightmare on Elm Street? Did you did you like it? Did you think it was fine? Like, where yeah. where do you stand? I mean, I definitely think you should watch it if you're a fan of Wes Craven's, which I am. Uh, I think you'll get a lot out of watching this because there's so much that has influenced other filmmakers. Uh, mm-hmm. It is super inventive in the way that a lot of things are executed. I did find myself like two-thirds in feeling a little bit like okay i'm ready for this to be over but it was definitely entertaining interesting thought-provoking so i I would say yeah go for it you should definitely watch this movie and and adam does it hold up for you yeah i mean like i said i i had watched this like i think it was about six months ago like right right around halloween if not you know shortly thereafter and enjoyed it then and the prospect of having to rewatch it again for this the show was not I, I wasn't like, oh, God, now I'm going to have to watch this again. I was like, OK, this will be fun. Like, I've, I'll maybe I'll see some stuff I never noticed before. So, yeah, I think for people who are fans of the genre or of this director's work or just like, yeah, seeing the influence that this had, because it clearly was a very influential film. And I think it's also just of that era. Most of these movies, as I said, they're not like this. They're kind of schlocky or they're paint by numbers. And this was very different. And I still think even today is very different. They don't make movies like this, really. The lack of reliance on jump scares, the level of, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that it's super intellectual, but it has elements to it that take it in a very different direction from most movies of this style. And yes, some of it is very 80s and doesn't necessarily hold up super well, but I I do think that it's on the whole of an entertaining experience and it's one that um, I would definitely recommend. And I would love to see this in a theater with a bunch of fans and, I yeah. think, you know, because I think it would be one of those movies where seeing it in a theater would benefit it and then seeing it in a theater with people who love it would benefit it even more. So hopefully one day there'll be like a big Nightmare on Elm Street marathon somewhere in Toronto and I can go go see it in a theater, but... Well, that brings us to the point where we discuss our next entry in the series, which we're going back to the 60s. Like back, We seem to be alternating between the 80s and the 60s or earlier. Uh, so it sees us back, back in that era. But what's interesting is that we're going to a film that neither of us actually have seen before. Yeah. Uh, but is a huge, huge influence, at least on the characters of The Simpsons. And that film is... The Nutty Professor. So I know nothing about this beyond... I mean, I know of the whole, like, Jerry Lewis thing, and then obviously it was remade with Eddie Murphy, but Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going in blind here, so I really don't know what to expect. Those 1950s, 60s comedies can go one of two ways. They either hold up really, really well or very, very poorly. So I don't really know what to expect. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Obviously, you know... The character of the Nutty Professor was a huge influence on uh, Professor Frank. It's basically yep. a, an impersonation of this character. Um, so I'm excited to like dig into that, the way that it's influenced The Simpsons, particularly that character. 
But yeah, I, I have no idea what to expect, whether I'm going to like this or I'm going to hate it, because I think that it could really go either way. We'll find out. Yeah, we will find out. So if you want to find out along with us, be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. As always, if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review or tell your friends or tweet about it or Facebook about it or, you know, just, I don't know, like talk to other people in, in real life. Like that's a thing that we used to do. Uh, but yes, uh, as always, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. See you around the place. Around the place. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah.